Ten years as a PT, I saw the siloed and fragmented health and social care system. And so I realized that integrating care is absolutely the crux of what we need to do going forward. And through that stepping stone, get to a place where we can move towards a preventative care model. Welcome to the Canopy IQ podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Shanor Koja, founder and CEO of Thriving.ai, a digital platform which seeks to bring everyone involved in healthcare, social care, informal family care, and professional care together to support independent living. Shane was on the board of governors at Canada's International Development Research Center and attended Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Welcome, Shane. It is a sincere privilege to have you. Adam, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to uh, chat to you and uh, get some messages out. Terrific. Yeah, I thought about you earlier this week. I was scrolling through CNN and there was an article about the unfolding humanitarian disaster taking place in Afghanistan and how it's impacting the lives of uh, women and, and girls two years after the Taliban's takeover. And I wanted to reference a TED talk you gave where you shared your founding vision as a, as a team builder and, a, and really a founding team member for Roshan and how it really led to thinking of investment as a catalyst for social return. And you're one of those people who actually walks the walk, uh, so to speak. You put your money where your mouth is, as we Yanks like to say. Can you share how Rashan came about and the impact it had on Afghani women and their access to uh, a career in technology? Adam, thank you. I do try and run away sometimes from my history in Afghanistan, but I think there's a bond there that uh, will never, never weaken at all. So I started my career as a physical therapist and uh, had a decade of businesses, etc. And then my husband's a telecoms expert, and uh, the Aga Khan Fund for Economic Development, which invests in countries with fragile infrastructure to help people uh, get out of poverty, decided to invest in Afghanistan. And so they sought out my husband who put together a founding team that went on the ground in 2003, just as the Taliban fell. Now, the principles of AGFED are what are so astounding. It's probably the first ever impact fund. It was established in 1967. And the, the principles are simple. We invest in infrastructure and we build human capacity such that the infrastructure and the human capacity can enable itself to lift itself out of poverty. Now, let's get rid of the big words and try and put that into sort of normal speak, right? So basically what we did was we went in and we built the telecoms infrastructure, what in the U.S. you call cellular, right? So at that time, there were about 10,000 landlines in the country, and, you know, if you were lucky, you were one of those 10,000. Otherwise, it cost you $12 a minute on a satellite phone. So we invested as AgFed $600 million 
over a decade into the country, through our business, we actually paid $450 million in taxes. We represented 6% of the GDP and created in excess of 40,000 jobs, with 1,200 of those being in our own company. And 97% of the company was Afghan. So, and today it still operates after the fall of the Afghan. But the impact that we had was that we brought women into the formal economy. And that wasn't because we just went in and said, hey, women, come and work with us. We actually understood the cultural setting. We offered pick up and drop off. We designed uniforms that respected cultural norms. We provided daycare. We provided a healthy meal for them. And we educated the families as to what a second income would mean. And Adam, this was very different in a country where the only jobs were women were beauty therapy, seamstressing, cooking, right? We are talking about women in technology, in management, in business, and so forth. Uh, so we had a huge impact from our business. And I'll just add here that, you know, the, the really transformational impact came from what we called our CSR programs, our corporate social responsibility programs, where we invested in the local community. So these are things like building telemedicine, building playgrounds, uh, starting e-learning centers for women, building a gym for women, drilling wells so that girls didn't have to spend two or three hours a day collecting water every day. And the list goes on. But, you know, it was that kind of transformational change that the business brought. Now, listeners and you might be thinking, well, if you're doing all of that, are you making money? Well, if we paid that much tax, I can tell you we made money. It was a healthy business. Uh, but it's what's commonly referred to as a triple bottom line business. Uh, and that, I think, was the, the sort of crowning piece because of the timing, because of the model, and because of the impact we had, there was such a great deal of interest, which is why if you, you know, look at the media, you will see so many articles on the work that we did and today there are three Harvard case studies uh, being taught at Harvard Business School about this model. This commitment to CSR translated directly into your inspiration to launch Thriving.ai. So how, how are you going about balancing the needs of healthcare practitioners, care facilities, social housing entities and businesses, that's a lot of plates to keep in the air. A lot of different personas, each with their own agendas, each with their own specific needs. Adam, you said it, I'm trying to boil the ocean. <laughs> but um, look, 10 years as a PT, I saw the siloed and fragmented health and social care system. And then having spent 15 years dealing with poverty, I saw how fragmented and siloed that was. You know, if you were poor, you were so busy trying to get a job, a house, clean water, education, health, etc. you didn't have time to actually lead a productive life. And as a caregiver myself, 
you know, after these 15 years, I have experienced the same situation where I've become an informal caregiver to my mother. And I look at her needs and I look at where I have to go to to fulfill those needs. And it's a full-time job, but I already have a full-time job. Right, right. So balancing all of that is really hard. And so I realize that integrating care is absolutely the crux of what we need to do going forward. Like that's a foundational piece. If you get that, then we're halfway there. If you integrate care, everyone that needs to be involved in support is involved at the right time and is up to date. Nobody falls through the cracks and nobody wastes time just coordinating stuff. It produces more time for the people providing care because information's available as and when they need it, and they don't have to go chasing the information. So I think that is critical. I think the second thing that became very apparent to me is that you can set up everything for your parent, but socialization, loneliness, companionship, that community is something, if broken, it really impacts life. And there's been a lot of research that tells us that the quality and the quantity of life is poorer. You may have heard of the Blue Zone studies, and I don't need to go into them here. And so I think that's the second piece of what Thriving is trying to um, address. So integrating care and then the socialization piece. Now, the futuristic thing about this is that with the advent of generative AI, whilst we collect data of interactions and actions that happen, all of which is anonymized, by the way, Adam, and GDPR compliant, et cetera, there is the ability now to use that data to predict a negative event or a decline in health before you get to the place where you go to hospital and call 911. And that ability can help save cost, it can improve quality of life and reduce the disruptions in people's lives, caregivers and care recipients. And that's the final goal of Thriving AI. That's wonderful. You did touch briefly on blue zones, and I'd actually love to dig into that a little bit more and get your perspective. I think, from as I understand it, those are countries with a high uh, population of centenarians. Is that accurate? That's correct. And can you speak about some of the um, underlying factors that that drive uh, longevity in these cultures? I think that's actually really a fascinating subject. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the clear things here are a healthy, balanced lifestyle, right? And that healthy is a mixture of your own physical well-being, mental and emotional well-being. And that is sort of the whole social side of things, your community, your purpose in life, uh, what you eat, how you exercise, how mobile you are, etc., cetera, the, the cleanliness of your environment and so forth. And so what is often forgotten in our model of care today is that we are very reactive. 
you know, our insurance pays if we get sick, right? Our doctors are at hand if we get sick. We go to the hospital if we need, right? But we've got this whole piece prior to getting to that point. I don't think we'll get rid of hospitals or doctors. That's not the point. The point here is that how can we help people stay healthy? If you look at some of the stats at the moment, 55% of over 65-year-olds in the U.S. have two or three comorbidities, which are things like diabetes, high blood pressure, um, respiratory issues, chronic pulmonary disease, this kind of stuff, right? And all of those lead to medication, complications, deterioration in one's functional ability, yeah? And all of these also lead to Alzheimer, dementia. I'm talking broadly here, right? Not as a scientific paper. So, and that has cost impacts, for all of us, right? And we may fool ourselves to say that the government pays, the insurance pays, but ultimately it's our lifelong work and taxes that are paying. And so this is a problem for everyone. I think that, you know, what we're trying to do here is get in at an operational level with thriving so that businesses and families look at this and see how can I save time? How can I reduce disruptions? And through that stepping stone, get to a place where we can move towards a preventative care model, which I think is the model that you, I, and many of the listeners today would want our older age to reflect. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've hit on, um, we could have multiple conversations about this subject because I think what we see here in the U.S., unfortunately, is a, a decline in quality of care for a lot of aging Americans. And that's a subject that's actually very close to home for myself. My brother called me this week. He's a lieutenant in the fire department in Denver. He's got a very high stress job. And he's also uh, fulfilling the role of caretaker, caregiver for our 85-year-old mother. And he, he told me this week that he took her to the store and she purchased Twizzlers, licorice, <laughs> yeah. sugar, and sweet and low. And I see that it, for her, she has access to better food, but the motivation to take care of herself is lacking. And my brother can't be with her 24 seven. So I think a tool like, like a thriving.ai plays a significant role in facilitating an improved mode of living. And I think that the need for these applications is just going to increase over time. And that really takes me um, to the next subject, which is, and I've, I heard recently that I'm not so, supposed to use this phrase. Um, my, my friend James Lee at Bella Groves told me that the phrase silver tsunami is not supposed to be used uh, according to Bob Kramer. So James, if you're listening, I'm going to retire it after this podcast, I promise. There's this idea, I think, out there that you know, there's this new gold rush and that it's going to mint this all new generation of, of millionaires. And it's sort of, for lack of a better metaphor, panning for gold in the aging services sector. But I do wonder if some of that enthusiasm, if that's the right word for it, is misplaced. I interviewed Dr. Sarah Kyle about this subject months ago, and she brought up 
I think is a very valid point, which is essentially the tech only works if it actually provides a viable service for seniors, which then made me think about your perspective on how a healthy business model leads to a healthy society. We need so much more of that. Thank you, Adam. And I think I'm going to answer this question through the story of thriving because those points will come through, right? So, of course, the discovery process, right? I had afternoon tea with older people, with caregivers, and then with them together, right, to to figure out what were the issues that were impacting people. And then we came up with a design um, that we put out there. We put it out to 10 older adults and caregivers, and 10 out of 10 people said, no, thank you. Okay, now you're going to ask me why. <laughs> because the first thing we asked them to do was to give, them, give us their credit card details. So they got 30 days free, but give us your credit card details, the LinkedIn model, you know, and uh, then uh, we'll provide the service. What we learned from that is that they need to know and experience what they are buying before they pay for it. So we fixed that. We then went out to them with a very simplified user interface. And they said, we love what you're putting out there. We may be old. Our sight may be a little bit strained. Our dexterity may be a little bit weaker. But we're not done. And we don't need two colors. We want vibrant colors, etc." And so we went back. And what you see now is what we're putting out there. Um, and so I think the lessons are that you can't tweak what you've made for mainstream and adapt it for the older population. You have to develop something purposeful with their input in it so that it sort of personifies itself to them in a useful service. Otherwise, it's not useful. And we learned lots of other lessons and we continue to learn lots of lessons because what you build is not going to be right for 100% of the population. There'll be a subgroup that doesn't want their kids to know what they're doing or how they're feeling because they're stubbornly independent. And, you know, there'll be a group that will want their kids to know every second of what they're doing. So, you know, you work between those parameters, but I think that there is a lot of money to be made. I don't think it's to be made in the old way. Um, when I say the old way, I mean real estate investment trusts with large towers built for older people. Today, people are looking for an intergenerational setting. They want to interact with technology and the younger population. Those stereotypical views about uh, an 85-year-old not being able to use technology are not 100% true because my bet is, and I know, that more than 50% of 85-year-olds would use technology if designed for them. So you served on Canada's IDRC for a six-year term. In the U.S., we have leading age to help craft policy for our seniors. And so much of what they do really speaks to uh, combating ageism stereotypes, which you just very deftly explained. Uh, these ideas are uh, very outdated in terms of older folks not having 
the wherewithal or the desire to access technology. It, it's a it's a stereotype that really just needs to be uh, put to bed once and for all. Our challenge here, and I'm not, I'm speaking for myself, obviously not for a leading age, but there are so many competing priorities, and it's everything from affordable care to how to handle this rising number of uh, folks diagnosed with dementia. One out of three seniors will eventually die from dementia or Alzheimer's. It's a, it's a really staggering statistic. And many of those uh, folks are, are living in some level of isolation. Not to put too much of an onus on this, but from your perspective, knowing what you know now and having this global view about aging and technology, and you just mentioned AI, which I thought is obviously on everybody's mind these days. What do you think the top three priorities should be in terms of supporting uh, this rapidly growing aging population? So Adam, as you rightly stated, this is a problem for all of us. It's a global problem. Yes, we're going to be 2.1 billion people over the age of 60 by 2050. The U.S. population is going to double. 22% of the U.K. population is going to be over the age of 60. So this problem is not going away. And the tipping point for you know, having enough younger people to care for the, this type of population is 2050. It's after 2050. So we can ignore this issue or we can get ahead of it. Now, the stats you give are depressing stats, right? And some organizations, uh, employers have started to put in policies that help their employees stay healthy. So that, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that there's nothing being done. But I think... In terms of top three priorities, I think it's social, physical, and emotional well-being. I think that is the core, right? We need enough interaction, acceptance, and inclusion of these populations in everyday life to make them part of the whole community, right? So I, I think that is foremost, and it's actually not very expensive to do, right? I think the second thing is to have this preventative view to, to life, right? So, you know, from school onwards, really getting preventative measures in healthy foods, etc., for future planning, but for current planning, you know, your mum loves Twizzlers. Well, you know, if she's 85, she should have Twizzlers. But maybe reading an article in Thriving or belonging to a social circle where she goes for a walk or reads a book, some of those better habits or managed, balanced habits come through. That's, that's our aim of that. Yeah. And I think that the third thing is, that we really need to look at models where we can have these intergenerational communities. And there are examples around the world of these kinds of setups, right, where you have a creche or a nursery next to a, a place where older people can gather, right, 
homes designed so that, you know, internet signals and Wi-Fi can get through the walls because they're not so old and that, you know, corridors are wider, there's more access through ramps, etc. I think that kind of future planning is the way to manage this because a cure for Alzheimer's may come. I hope it does. And, I, and there's so much money being thrown in, into that bucket. But at the same time, waiting for another pill is probably not our solution. We need to think about how we can bring in strategies to motivate individuals to take better care of themselves so that the cost of care, the quality of life, right? There's no point having quantity of life constantly, you know, in a supported isolated arena. So I think that's kind of my viewpoint. Perhaps some listeners won't agree with that. But if I was thinking about my end of life, my next 30 years, right, after 60 or 70, I would want to be physically able, you know, be able to be mentally astute and care for myself and I'll just put, put in Atul Gandhi. I don't know if you've heard of him being mortal. And, you know, listeners can Google his TED talk. But, you know, he talks about he's a cancer specialist. And um, he talks about quality and quantity of life. Right. And there's a very good example of a, a particular patient that he gives. And she's terminal. And he asks her, I'm purposely not telling you her diagnosis or what happened, so people go and listen to it. Um, but he asks her, you know, at what point would she consider sh- the quality of life so poor that to live another day is not in her best interest? And then he treats her on that basis. So the dignity of that is she go out, she goes out on her own terms. Do you see what I'm saying about this? And and so I think that is really important because we're all going to die. None of us are going to live forever, but it's the how. Right, the quality of life well lived. Can you share the name of this uh, gentleman you just referenced? Atul Gwande, G-W-A-N-D-E, A-T-U-L. Okay. And, yeah, um, sure yeah, no, there's a book as well called Being Mortal, but, you know, you can Google the TED Talk and that will tell you. I don't know anybody whose life has not been touched by uh, cancer. Uh, literally everyone I know, um, whether they've lost a teenage child or an elder parent or spouse, it's an endemic situation. And I think the way we tackle it is certainly changing and will be changing over the coming years. So I wanted to reference your TED Talk again, because I've watched it a few times now. I've, I found it very inspiring. And I could see that the audience was really enthralled uh, with the message you were delivering. And that is, you, know, you concluded it with a call to action, which really challenged people to ask themselves if they're making a difference. And I, I think for, for myself, you know, we all get so wrapped up in our day-to-day lives. And frankly, it's easy to succumb to the pressures we feel, ordinary living, um, 
the bills, the kids, walking the dog, if you will, just the stuff. You know, what is this? What's the saying? I mean, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. I think it was John Lennon who said that maybe. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting it. You have managed to move mountains. And I don't say that lightly. You have achieved so many different goals and you've done it in a way that is eloquent. You have set out to uh, enable people to live a better life. And you've done it in a way that's been beneficial, not just to yourself, because we all, I mean, frankly, we all have to keep the lights on, but you've balanced it in a way that I think is something that very few people manage to achieve, frankly, myself included. No, thank you, Adam. You know, I look, I, I think I'm very fortunate and most people that work at Roshan would tell you the same. Uh, to be able to balance um, in a company your purpose and to be able to earn a living. But I will say that, Adam, there have been many sacrifices that we've made. You know, we've been absent parents to our two kids. Uh, we traveled away to Afghanistan when our daughter was six years old and our son was nine years old, right? They lived in Dubai, and I went back and forth at weekends. And we're very blessed because they've turned out to be two beautiful human beings that are highly successful uh, and, keep, and can teach their mom and dad a thing or two. So we are very, very fortunate, but there's been pain along the way, and we've also lost some beloved individuals um, on the way, which, you know, was very hard to, to bear. Thank you for sharing these intimate aspects and experiences that you've had, because there's a lot of superficial talk out there. I've tried to avoid that in this podcast and really touch on some themes that are important and that are impactful. And although I have not experienced the level of achievement you have, I, I've certainly strived to you know, make a difference in my own way. My plans have not been quite as ambitious as yours, but I, and that's why we need people like you, right? To, to move mountains. But I do relate to this idea of having missed, you know, these day-to-day -day experiences with my kids. Um, they don't remember that. I've brought it up with them. I said, you know, I, I worked 12 hour days when you were five. Well, we don't remember that at all. So that was a, a little bit of a relief there. Um, so I wanted to ask you the final question our closing question. You know, what's on the horizon for you in Thriving.ai? The technological landscape is shifting. The advancements we're making are just incredible, really, I mean, for lack of a better word. Um, what are your, what's your vision for 2024? Thank you, Adam. So <clears throat> we, our product is ready. It's on the app stores right now, and we are looking to go to market. So we're looking for families to use it to give us feedback on it. We're looking at businesses, all varieties of them, physicians, nurse practitioners, retirement communities, and so forth. So we're focused on our go-to-market strategies right now and also raising money because we have one more level of um, development that we want to do because from our pilots and focus groups, uh, we realize that some there's a large proportion of individuals that do not have family. 
And so we're trying to fill that gap with a chatbot, but not Alexa type of chatbot, a chatbot that is uh, more interactive. And so we're raising funds for that. But um, hopefully, you know, we continue on this path and keep growing the usership and uh, help more and more people. But um, we're always open for any inquiries or approaches or thoughts. And people can get in touch with me at my email through the website or at shane at thriving.ai. Yep. (laughs) Just more to the grind. (laughs) I hope that I can come back to you in three or five years and say, remember that talk, Adam? That's right. (laughs) We did boil the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do this again. Shane, thank you for sharing your life story with us, your vision for the future. And again, congratulations on launching thriving.ai. I think it's... um, it's a fantastic product. I have navigated it myself. And I'm going to call my mom after this podcast <laughs> wraps up. And I'm going to tell her that she is free to have as many Twizzlers as she wants, but she should also balance that out with some more vegetables. How does that sound, Shane? That sounds perfect. <laughs> thank you for having me on, Adam. Oh, thank you. Terrific. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Canopy IQ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe and leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out previous episodes, which cover a wide range of subject matter, including AI, digital advertising, branding, age tech, and much, much more. For additional insights and updates, please visit our website at canopyandco.com. That's C-A-N-O-P-Y-A-D-C-O.com. Until next time, this is Adam signing off. Canopy's mobile device targeting allows businesses to reach their audience wherever they are. The powerful tool leverages GPS technology to target specific geographic locations. This provides precise audience targeting, helping businesses to deliver the right message to the right people at the right time. Visit CanopyAdco.com to learn more. On behalf of Canopy IQ, I wanted to take this opportunity to wish all of our listeners a very happy and relaxing holiday season. I have a lot to be grateful for, including the opportunity to host this wonderful podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next year.